My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been studying together as a church um, at this campus, at all our campuses, um, the Apostle John's first letter near the end of the first century uh, to the church, to the church that's emerging, the second generation, the third generation of the church. And John's writing to them because he wants them to take heart. He wants them to be assured of their salvation. He wants them that, uh, even though there are folks that have come into the church and to try to teach um, something different, a different gospel, he doesn't want them to fall away from the faith, their faith in Jesus, the faith they've known since the beginning of their salvation. And so, this morning, um, in fact, John's pastoral heart uh, uh, his compassion, his comfort is going to be on full display as we look at the end of 1 John chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 3, and that's where we'll be. And then at the end of the service, we're going to be taking communion together. And if, if you didn't pick one of these up on the way in, um, that's okay at the, towards the end of, the, of this service this morning. Um, I'll have you slip up your hand and, and somebody will bring them to you, but we'll, we're, we're moving towards um, our communion um, MREs, okay? And uh, if you've never done one, I'll, I'll tell, you how to, tell you how to do it, see if I can not mess it up this time. All right. Okay, so, if you, so here I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, um, beginning in verse 19 of 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to go to the end of the chapter, which is verse 24, and this is what uh, this passage says for us this morning. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And in whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. If you would, would you bow with me and let's, let's pray. Father, I, I ask that you'd help us with this passage, help us to, to, um, to hear your word, to understand your word. Father, I pray you'd draw us this morning to your son Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for um, restless hearts to be comforted. Father, for um, sinful hearts to be convicted. Father, in all of this, that we would know your love for us. And and we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, verse 19 when it says, by this we shall know. The, the by this, if you've got your Bibles, he, he's talking about verse 18 just above that. So, so by this, well, by, by what? Well, um, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and 
truth. So, so he's telling us, hey, listen, we need to love, and we need to be people who, who pay more than just lip service to love, that a true love is a doing love. And, and, and when, we're, when we're doing this love, this word and, and deed, um, uh, I mean, this, this deed and truth love, this, this real doing love, I think he's going to argue in just a minute that, that really comes from the, the power, the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. When we're doing that love, there's, there's an assurance, a, a reassurance that comes from that. When by this we shall know that we are of the truth because we're doing the truth. And we're doing the, the truth of love and reassure our heart before Him. Now, the word for heart here, it's, it's the normal word for heart, cardia. I mean, you, know, you get cardiologists from that. And, and in the New Testament, it's used a couple of ways. Sometimes it's used physically to talk about your, your heart, the, mus- you know, the organ muscle the pounding in your chest. The other times it's used um, as a metaphor for your conscience. I'll give you just a couple of examples in, in Romans 9. Uh, the first two verses in Romans 9, Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, and he uses the word for conscience there, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Cardia. Paul's connecting the two. My conscience, my, my heart, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, my, my conscience bears witness that my heart is in anguish. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching the gospel. You know, Peter's great first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And it says this about the hearers. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the, to the heart. Their, their conscience was, was overwhelmed with what it is that Paul was, or Peter was, was preaching. The Old Testament uses, talks about, uses the heart to, to say the same kinds of things. Um, David is hiding in the cave. Saul comes. David comes and cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. And, and then later it says, and afterwards David's heart struck him. It means his, his conscience was guilty because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 86 will say, um, as he prays to God, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then he says, unite my heart to fear your name. That this place of the heart, the conscience, our, our feelings, the psalmist is saying they can be so divided sometimes. Unite my heart to fear your name. Well, when we think about the conscience, when we think about our, our heart in that way, our, our, our conscience, it's this inner feeling or voice, and it, it's viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or the wrongness of our behavior. And so what John's saying here, that on the one hand, your heart, your, your conscience, it can condemn you, and on the other hand, you, you, the heart, your, your conscience, can, can be a reassurance or a confidence. Look, look again what he says in verse 20. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I think what John may be referring to specifically, and then I think it has general application 
all over the place, is, is the situation where the believer's heart condemns them because of a guilty conscience concerning sin, and, and probably specifically failing to show love for fellow Christians. Now, if you were here last week, and we looked at this passage, and um, John is saying, that, you know, listen, we need to love one another, um, and don't be like Cain, because Cain's a murderer. And so, murdering is bad, um, but hating people is also bad. That's just like murder. If you've ever hated somebody, you've murdered them, and if you murder, then eternal life, you know, your murder, eternal life doesn't abide in you, and you hear these things, and it says, hey, but, you know, take heart, just love um, you know, love your brother um, as yourself, just, just unconditionally, without question, always, consistently, love them sacrificially at great cost to yourself. And you leave that and think, I don't, listen, I don't know a lot of things, but I know I fail at that. And, and you're your heart can be weighed down. You hear that, and you, and as a believer, your, your sensitivity leaves you to say, I, I, I can't, I don't always love that way. And I think what, what John's doing is, he, I think he knows the weight of these words, and he's coming in with this assurance to say, I know your heart condemns you. I know that it does. I know that as you evaluate your life, and you see and become more, you know, as you grow in Christ, the more mature a believer you become, it's not that sin becomes less of a problem. The reality is the more mature in your relationship with Christ, the more sensitive you are to sin. And that, and that your heart condemns you and, and it feels weighed down. And he's saying, listen, take heart. God is greater than your heart. So this, this is the, the problem that he's addressing. It, the condemning conscience. So we might even think sometimes, you know, we might call it, um, you know, depression. We can get the blues. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, um, you know, d depression uh, that needs to be addressed by the medical uh, 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 person. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about, the, the depression we cycle in and out of. Or, or it's something that, you know, we... We can't quite understand. Sometime during, you know, our life, we've had these, um, you know, uh, trouble with a, a bad conscience. Paul call, or John here calls it a, a condemning heart. You, you know, something that just nags you. I mean, sometimes, it's, I mean, you ate too much too late before you went to bed. Sometimes it's something that, you know, we might or might not be able to put our finger on. Sometimes it's that we're out of fellowship with the Lord because there's some sin in our life, and we haven't dealt with that. I think there's also the fact that a condemning heart can be an attack of Satan, you know, the evil one, our enemy, who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and looks for every opportunity, every chink in our armor, every little place that he might come and and seek to drag us away from our relationship with Jesus. And so what we do about that, so, so two things. John's already said one of them. You know, we first place to start us through forgiveness in, in 1 John 1. 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Unforgiven sin 
is accompanied by guilt, by, by conviction. And those who lack God's forgiveness because they haven't gone to Him in confession, He says, listen, you can't be confident in that. Forgiveness is received by confession. And when we repent and, and believe that He cleanses our sin, we can be confident in God and guilt disappears. Confession of sin is very cleansing. But sometimes, even though we've confessed sin, we've experienced forgiveness, we've experienced cleansing, the guilt may return, that shame may return. We, we remember something, and, and then there it comes again. Listen, I think for others, the reality is you've struggled your whole life with acceptance or self-worth or, or insecurity, and what happens is that while in your head, if you're a believer, you know that you're accepted and you're treasured by God and you're secure with God because of what Jesus has done and, and your faith in what Jesus has done, you still struggle with projecting those feelings upon God. And, and when you feel this condemnation, you know, whatever term you, 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 you experience it as, we find ourselves in the place of needing to re-reckon or reconsider or do a reaccounting of the fact that, that our relationship with Jesus Christ secures us with God. So almost a, we've got to uh, remember and refresh our thinking that, that our standing in God's presence is not because of our own righteousness. It's not because of our own activities. It's it's because of the righteousness of the Son of God, because of His perfection, because of His life and His death and His resurrection. And we need to renew our minds and our thinking with the truth of God's Word that we are, as Paul calls it, accepted in the Beloved because we're in Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's how he begins Romans 8. He ends Romans 8 by saying, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even our condemning hearts will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so if you're going to silence the doubts, the, the condemnation that your heart brings, you've got to know that the truth, and that's the place to begin. And you go back to the basics of the, the truth of God's Word about our relationship with Christ. Because listen, our emotions, our feelings are so subject to discouragement and to gloom and to despair. And John says, listen, we're of the truth and our hearts can be renewed and refreshed in that. And it's by the mind's knowledge, the supernatural knowledge that comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we spend time in God's Word. And that that comes and it can, um, it can silence the doubts of the heart, the condemning of the heart. Now, here's the reality. You, you can't 
reason your way into salvation. You don't become a child of God because you intellectually attained some information or because we, f- we figured it out. Or be, you know, th- That's not how we are saved. It is not merely a mental exercise. You, you come because the Spirit's you know, you come to salvation, the Spirit's moved on you, you've received the gospel by faith, you've trusted in, in Jesus, you've put the weight of your life on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, at the same time, there's, there's an emotional part as believers, the joy and the hope and the confidence and the, the thrill of knowing Jesus, and it can be, you know, th- that can be refreshed, that can be renewed. And so our hearts and our minds, they come together. John says, then we come to the place where our heart's condemning us. We need to use our minds. We need to um, you know, remember, be refreshed in what God has done, what God has revealed. Part of the word reveals the truth of the need for us to confess our sin. Part of the Word reveals the truth of our standing in God's sight because of what Christ has done. Now, we'll talk about this in a second, but, but don't miss it. God is greater than our heart. In verse 22, um, after he talks about the heart that, that condemns us, uh, but that God knows everything. And if our heart doesn't condemn us, we can have confidence before God. And then he leads into, verse 22, this answered prayer, if you will. Well, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And we do what pleases him. Now, let me be clear. This is not, John's not, you know, this is not name it and claim it. Prayer is not a vending machine for your appetites. Prayer is a relationship. It's a father-child relationship, one in which the father knows you, knows you, and answers your prayer according to your best in accordance with his will. And as children who know the Father and continue to grow in our understanding of who God is, ultimately we want His will, even if we don't understand it. And so, John, so let's take what John says. How do you get your, your prayers answered? Well, one, he says, have a good conscience. And what does that do? Well, it gives you great confidence. And then you come to God and you ask in His name and your, your prayers are, are answered. Um, let, let, let's notice this about that. Answered prayer is not promised to rebels. Answered prayer is not for those whose hearts are filled with hate. It is not. The Bible says, Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity, sin, 
I'd have cherished that in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. S. Lewis Johnson, an old preacher, used to be professor at Dallas Seminary, um, pastor at, at Believer's Chapel in Dallas, says this, incidentally, he says this about what John's saying here in verse 22, incidentally, he's not formulating a doctrine. He's relating his own experiences. The, the verbs are in the present tense. He's telling what is happening in his life. Wherever we, whatsoever we go on asking, we go on receiving from him because we are keeping his commandments and we're doing those things which are pleasing to him. He's telling us what his experience is. It is a great doctrine, all right, but nevertheless, it is his experience. So answered prayer, one of the great experiences of life, our Father, my Christian friend, he says, is pleased by obediently loving children. You want your prayers answered? Follow his word. Well, he's going to tell us what that is specifically in a minute. But, but that the assurance, the comfort, the experience, the joy of, of answered prayer goes hand in hand with our obedience to him. In fact, Peter will give this warning to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7. Six verses to the wives, one verse to the husband. But if you put them on the scale, the one verse to the husband is way heavier. And he says this, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The way Paul says it is, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, sitting here in this room this morning, or the living room online this morning, your understanding of your wife, your, your honor for her, your, your love for her has direct impact upon your prayer life. I think John, you know, he's, he's later in his life, he's writing towards the end of his life, the end of the first century. My guess is John's thought a lot about prayer throughout those years. One of the things that he observed as a disciple with Jesus for those three years, living with him and traveling with him and being an eyewitness to his ministry, is that Jesus was a man of prayer. In the wake of Lazarus' death, Martha actually says to him, says, I know even now God will give you, she says to Jesus, God will give you whatever you ask. The assurance, the, the precedence of Jesus' effectiveness in prayer, it's just the tip of the iceberg of all that's said in the Gospels, all during Jesus' ministry. I mean, he would wake early and go spend time in prayer before he chose his disciples. The Gospel writers specifically give this, us this glimpse into Jesus praying over that. 
at the transfiguration, at the Last Supper, in the garden, when he cries out to God, a prayer on the cross, when, when the disciples ask him for specific instruction, the instruction they ask him is, teach us how to pray. John records over and over and over again in his gospel that Jesus, not only was he a man of prayer, he was a man who did nothing apart from the will of his Father. He was obedient to the Father. When the one time it's recorded that Jesus' will in his humanity was different than the Father, Jesus prayed, if there's any other way, can this cup be taken from me? But then he says, but not my will. Your will be done. In fact, there's a story in John chapter 9 where John in this story connects both of those things, the obedience of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus. And John 9 is about this um, man who was born blind. Jesus comes upon him. He heals him. And the man then, you know, presents himself and the, and the religious leaders, they're they're all up in arms about this guy being healed. And they say to him, you say, well, so, you know, it's essentially the tone is this, you know, how dare you start seeing? Who gave you your sight? He says, I, I don't know. I was blind. I didn't see him. And when my eyes opened, he, I, I don't know who it was. He says, well, you're a liar. You, you weren't born blind. You're just doing this for attention. So they go and threaten his parents, and then they come back, and they examine him again. And Essentially, he says to him, look, I, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. And then he says this. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Whatever else you have to say about this man, he did something no one else has ever done. And he connects the obedience of Jesus with the prayer of Jesus. John is inviting us into experiencing this, this joy, this um, um, prayer that is, that is answered, and we, and we know God's response to it, and He's inviting us into it as people who are obedient to our Father. And then He's going to tell us in verse 23, this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Believe and then love. Believe, he speaks about this as the, as the catalyst of our salvation, the catalyst of our relationship, the, the very beginning, the moment that faith begins. And we believe the name. It's, it's meant to uh, signify that we commit 
ourselves to all that that name signifies. To believe in the name is to believe in, in the sonship of Jesus, that he is the eternal son of the eternal God made flesh. It is to believe that he's our savior. It's to believe he's the sacrifice for our sin. He's the advocate, the mediator that is seated at the right hand of God that even now is making intercession. It's to believe all of that. And then love. It's this present, active, tense. It's the result. The result of believing that is this ongoing, continual, sacrificial, agape love. And in doing that, This is an incredible effect on our life. God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything He said in verse 20. The English Bible scholar John Stott, in his commentary, he says this, stronger than any chemical tranquilizer is trust in our all-knowing God. passage is saying most of the problems, a lot of, a lot of what we struggle with as believers, the anxiety and the restlessness and the guilt and the condemning heart, relief from that comes, although maybe not always completely eliminated, but sometimes completely eliminated by deliberate, active expression of our belief in the name of the Son, and that active expression is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That love that flows from your faith in Jesus. Supernatural, meaning it's not natural. It's, it's getting out of yourself. It's trusting God for the energy and the resources and the desire and the outcome. It is a self-giving, self-giving self-sacrificing love. And that, that is this balm to a condemning heart. You need to obey the Word of God and love and deed and truth and stop doing it in just empty words. Now, look at what he says. Verse 24, we'll come to the end of this now. He says, whatever his command, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. Obedience is being the proof. It's... It's not the cause of, of, of your dwelling in God and Him dwelling in you. Obedience doesn't cause that. It's just the, the proof of that. In other words, obedience isn't the reason God dwells in us or we dwell in God. It's the evidence that He does. That the obedience that we cannot naturally do. Assurance is the product then of believing the Son and loving one another. And the, and the acts that, that come out of that, that, that's God working in our life. Believer's assurance in, the, in a genuine relationship with God is based on our believing in Jesus Christ, loving one another, and at the end of 24, he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And by this we know. It's the second time he's used it. He used it in verse 19. He's referring to 
everything here in verse 20, everything that has come before it, and he's speaking of a reassurance that comes from knowing that we are loving him and loving the people around us as he described. Verses 19 through 21, speaking of the power in prayer that comes from living that way in verses 22 and 23, and by this, we have this assurance, this reassurance that he lives in us. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us by the Spirit whom He has given us. You could read that and say, well, it's the Holy Spirit that gives that assurance, and, and that certainly is true. Here, I think he's saying, by all these things that we've been talking about in verses 19 through 23, we have assurance that He abides in us, and He abides in us by the Spirit who lives within us, and it's one of the great verses that teaches us about the, 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 the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and we know that because of the things that He enables us to do that we otherwise would not be able to do. Look at the things Scripture tells us to do. We find ourselves doing them even though how could anybody do these things? But we step out in faith. We, we do those things. We forgive one another. But we do something that's not self-serving, but it's self-sacrificing. We serve others. We do those things in the Word of God that brings this great reassurance that, that, uh, that He lives in us because otherwise we could not have done those things. I'll close this morning with an example. In most every commentator you read at some point says, you know what, I think John probably has this example in mind as he's talking about an uneasy conscience, a condemning heart. And the story shows up in John chapter 21, and, and maybe you know the story. It's the very end of John's gospel. And it's the scene after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. It's called the prologue of John, and it's kind of like, here's what happened to Peter after he denied Jesus three times after he said to Jesus, where you go, I'll go. If you go to death, I'll go to death. And Jesus says, oh, well, John, I mean, Peter, you, that's great. Thank you. But actually, you're going to deny me three times. He says, well, I'll never deny you. And in John 18, he denies him three times. And the rooster crows. And it pierced his heart. And now what he's done is he's, you know, I don't know, maybe he's quit. Maybe he decided, well, Jesus is going to have no use for me anymore. And so he goes back to fishing. And this is where Jesus comes and finds him in John chapter 21. And if you've got your Bibles with you or it's on your phone, go over to John 21. I want to show you two things. I think there are two restorations. Actually, it's all one restoration. There are just two parts of it. The first is, is the restoration of Peter to ministry, to, to his calling. 
In fact, it may be the very same shore that, that, that Jesus called Peter to ministry when he called him to be a disciple. And here he kind of recreates that scene. And, hey, have you, did you catch anything? And No. Cast your net out on the other side. And, and as soon as he did and all the fish come in, Peter knew who it was. It says he threw himself out of the boat. Swam ashore. Then after they eat something, Jesus begins to question him. He does it three times. He, he allows for this restoration. For each denial, he creates a restoration. Do you love me? He says, oh, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. If you love me, you'll love others. And then he says this interesting thing. In verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. That's what John says. We can go to him with a condemning heart because we know he knows everything. You know that I love you. Well, feed my sheep, love others. It's this beautiful scene, this beautiful restoration. But there's another one in the middle of this chapter that I want you to notice. It's one of the most beautiful things about John 21 to me, and it's how Jesus recreates the scene of the crime and then redeems not only the betrayal, but even the memory of the betrayal. Look at this in, in uh, 21 verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. They cast it, now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, they dragged the net full of fish, they weren't far from the land. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. It's interesting. There's only one other place that the writer, writer in the New Testament talks about a charcoal fire and it's John who does it in his gospel in John 18. And the scene is in John 18, Jesus has been arrested and he's been, you know, taken inside these gates to be questioned and John's left outside and he's standing by a charcoal fire warming himself. And three times by that fire, someone will say, hey, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? And standing by that fire, he says, no, I'm not. In fact, the last time he even cursed Jesus. I don't know if you've stood by a charcoal fire in a while. We did just last night. My daughter had some few friends over for uh, Reformation Day. And... 
they stayed socially distanced out in the backyard around a fire. And I was the guy who built the fire and made sure the fire was put out. And one of the things I noticed afterwards, like you notice if you stood by a fire, I, the smell of that fire was all over me. In fact, I took a shower before I went to bed. Went to bed. But even when I woke up this morning, you know, it's like still, I still smell like that fire. And it's a great smell. I love that. It's not how I wanted to show up at church this morning to preach, but it, you know. I mean, the, the sm- smell is a, is a powerful memory inducer, isn't it? You know, the reality is, is that Peter's out on that boat and he's fishing. After it's all said and done, it's been a few days. It's very possible the smell of that charcoal fire is still all over him. It's very possible that for the rest of his life, Every time he stood by a fire and smelled that smell, you know what it would do? It would condemn him. That condemning heart. In the grace that Jesus shows Peter, he recreates the scene of the crime and he redeems something as simple as a charcoal fire in the memory that it would produce. Now every time Peter would smell a charcoal fire, you know what he's thinking? He's not thinking of the night that he betrayed Jesus, although it may be where he starts. He now gets to think about the morning that he was restored. It's grace. It's restoration, it's redemption. When Peter's tempted, when his heart comes to condemn him, he can go back, he can cling to the grace. And that's exactly, in many ways, what we do at communion this morning. Communion provides that opportunity to remember, to refresh, to renew our hearts and our minds. When we confess our sin, the sin that Jesus took to the cross, the sin that is the reason for the cross, and in communion, we're reminded that Jesus took our sin. He drank that cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of condemnation. And so this morning, we bring our sin, we confess our sin at the foot of the cross, remembering Jesus' sacrifice. And remembering that there's No condemnation because he took our condemnation to himself. Remembering that nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus was separated on the cross so that we never have to be. And in our confession this morning, our our response to our confession, we're, we're handed the cup, not the cup of condemnation, but the cup of grace and love and mercy. And when your heart condemns, but when your heart tries to serve you up the cup of condemnation, you remember, no, 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 Jesus drank that cup. I drank, we drank from the cup of grace. It's communion was given to us. It serves to remind us of the grace 
of God through His Son. This is what I want us to do this morning. It's how I want us to end. Todd's going to come up and help prepare our hearts for it. If you don't have one of these, would you just slip your hand up? There's somebody who will bring you one. And I'll tell you how it is. There's two things to peel off. You, the very top one, the thin layer, it's clear. You peel that off and you'll get the, the wafer. And then after you take the wafer, you peel the next part off and, and then we'll drink. But here's what I want us to do. I want to, I want to pray for us and then Todd's going to prepare us for a moment. And then I'm going to come back. I'll interrupt us and we'll eat and drink together this morning in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Todd, I'll turn it over to you. Father, help us this morning as we take these few minutes to prepare that if there are condemning hearts in here this morning, Father, I pray that we would, one, begin with confession, believing that you Father, when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you do that, and we believe you do that because your son Jesus satisfied all the requirement, all the payment, all the condemnation for our sin. And Father, for those condemning hearts that for some reason can't put a finger on it, would you Renew our minds this morning. Remind us of our standing before you, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And Father, this morning, would you be greater than our hearts and draw us near to you in the confidence that we can have in your Son, Jesus. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who's seated at your right hand by the power of your Holy Spirit, which you have given to us.
writes to the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let us eat and drink together in remembrance of our Lord. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this chorus one more time before we're dismissed. All praise, all glory and honor, all praise is dismissed. We'll see you next week.